We all have questions about life and about faith. And through this fall, many of the questions we've asked have been, have been pretty big and philosophical kinds of questions, perhaps bordering on the theoretical. But in reality, some of our biggest questions are very practical. They're very personal. How can I find freedom from fear and anxiety? How do I deal with the pressures and the worries of life? And so I want to open our Bibles to Psalm 27. This is in the Old Testament book of songs. And, and if you probably flip the Bible open in front of you, you find it near the middle. It might just open to the book of Psalms. But turn to Psalm 27. You can find that on page 546. As we turn to God's Word to find answers for our lives. Listen as I read Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. For in the day of trouble, He will keep me safe in His dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let me pray that God would apply his word into our lives. Father, we give you thanks that we have the privilege to gather in worship to hear you speak. Lord, that we have not been left on our own to, to figure out the answers to life's questions, but you are the God who speaks to us. You are the God who has revealed himself to us. You are the God who has stepped into history to make yourself known, and so we give you thanks. We praise you for speaking to us in your word. And Father, I ask that you would give us clarity as we read, as we listen. You to give me clarity as I speak. Lord, that we would see your goodness, your mercy, and your love. Father in heaven, that we would be able to respond in gospel hope. Lord, for those who have gathered with us, who have been invited to join us, but come with, with questions that come today without faith, Lord, I pray 
that in this service they would be granted the faith to believe. Father in heaven, we come praising you, rejoicing in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Randall Monroe, a former NASA roboticist, he answers a series of questions in his book, What If? The title is, What If? And then he spins out uh, uh, these bizarre questions that he's been asked, but he gives surprisingly serious scientific answers. So these are some of the questions that he gets asked. What would happen if the earth and all terrestrial objects suddenly stopped spinning, but the atmosphere retained its velocity? Okay, what if a Richter 15 earthquake hit New York City? What if I took a swim in a pool that had spent nuclear rods in it? Okay, what would happen if you made a periodic table out of cube-shaped bricks that were made out of the corresponding elements? All right, so he answers this one, and in the summary he says, you could stack the top two rows without much trouble of the periodic table. But if you took the elements of the third row, you would burn with fire. The fourth row would kill you with toxic smoke. The fifth row would do all of that, plus give you a mild dose of radiation. The sixth row would explode violently, destroying the building in a cloud of radioactive, poisonous fire and dust. Do not build the seventh row. Now he, with a scientist's mind spins out answers. But almost all of the what-if questions end basically this same way. In absolute disaster, you will be destroyed. Now, his answers are amusing. They're funny. They're way beyond my level of scientific expertise. But in one sense, the ultimate answer to his questions, well, what if this awful thing happens is, who cares? Because he's writing from a a scientific materialistic worldview that says science has all the answers and the stuff we're made of, that's all that there is. So so the, the intro to the book basically says, if this happens next week, some giant nuclear explosion, well, you just aren't here anymore. If this happens in a, in a billion years as the, the universe fizzles out without any more power left in it, well, who ultimately cares? Now, as much fun as as Monroe's answers to these bizarre questions can be, you and I could ask much more practical and immediate what-if questions. What if the test results come back positive? What if these nagging health issues just keep piling up? What if I lose my job as a result of downsizing? What if the car breaks down this week and I don't have money to pay the the bills as they pile up? What if the election doesn't turn out the way that I hope? What if my kids ruin their lives with stupid choices? What if people find out who I really am? What if they find out what I've done? See, we could multiply the questions. These what-if scenarios, some of you are experts at this game. You could, you could in, in, a, in a day or, or a week, you could spin out thousands of these kinds of scenarios, and you do, with the anxiety that builds with each what-if question. 
See, we're good at coming up with the questions, but where can we turn for answers? Not merely scientific answers that give us a basis of what terrible thing would actually unfold, but what kind of hope could we find in the midst of our what-if questions? Can we find answers that offer us a real solution? And that's where, where the book of Psalms and, and Psalm 27 here is such an encouragement to us because David begins and ends with words of bold confidence in the midst of the chaos of life. L look back at, at, at Psalm 27 verse 1 where David begins with this, this song of affirmation and joy, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I mean, you, we, the, the images are easy enough for us to understand. God is my light. Because light chases away the darkness. It's in the shadows where there is danger. There are things to fear in the dark, but the Lord is my light. He is my salvation, my victory, my deliverance, my rescue. God is the God who rescues me. And so the question of verse 1, whom shall I fear? No one. The answer is, is there is no one left to fear if God is your rescuer, if God is your light. The Lord is my stronghold, the stronghold of my life, an image from battle, a place to which you could retreat and find safety. God is the stronghold of my life, a place that is safe because of the presence of God. And so then we ask, of whom shall I be afraid? Of no one. See, in the midst of, of chaos and worry and anxiety, what David does is he turns our attentions away from our circumstances and puts them on God. That God is with us in the midst of our fears, in the midst of our struggles. See, the focus is not on the worry. Our, the focus of our worry is, is often placed on the problems, but the biblical response is to turn your attention from the problems and put, put your questions on God. Who, would you, who could you possibly be afraid of if God is on your side? If the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? See, God is the one who rescues. And, and, and it's obscured a little bit for us in our English translation. But, but look again. The description that, that, that David gives of the Lord. When it's there in all capital letters in your English translation, that's the name of God. That is God's covenant name. He is Yahweh. He is the God who entered into history and announced his name to Abraham. He is the God who, who revealed himself to Moses. The God who, who tells us, I am in a relationship with you. You know God by name. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. The Lord is here with us. And so in the midst of fear and anxiety, we turn our attention from the circumstances to God himself who is with us. So David could say, though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out all around me. I look to God, I will be confident. And this confidence leads him in verse 4 to then this single-minded devotion. One of the most 
purposeful statements, a a statement of determined purpose found in all of Scripture. Look at verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek. I mean, how many troubles are there? We can multiply them by the thousands. They surround me, but I need only one thing. This is what I want right now. And what does he say in verse 4? The one thing that I ask of the Lord, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to be in the presence of God. Now, David is not talking about mere geography here, because remember, the house of the Lord, the temple of God, is not yet built. It is his son who will build the permanent structure. The, the, the house of the Lord is, is but a tabernacle, a tent that is, that is temporary. David is not looking for a place to live rent-free, to, get a, to escape the troubles of life. He's not even looking for, for a job to work there in the, as, as one of the, the lead worshipers. No, he's saying, I want to be in the presence of God, because verse 4 continues, why do I want to be there? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to see God for who he is, to rejoice in his beauty, to let his goodness and his beauty drive out the darkness and the ugliness that surrounds me, to be here to seek God in the midst of his temple. See, because the presence of God is not limited to a building. It's not limited to a a structure. David is not not saying that the only place to to physically escape is if I could get to God's physical temple. Because the Bible describes God as as present everywhere. It describes that that, that the whole universe is the place in which God is present, just the the way Isaiah ends his his book. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. We hear God speak. The Lord says, Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. And then he asks this question, where could you keep me? Where could you contain me? Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? See, David doesn't need a a place to flee to. He needs a person to flee to. He's not looking for a mere physical stronghold to escape the battle. He's looking for God himself to be his stronghold, chasing after the presence of God. And in some ways, the temple actually limits God's presence. Yes, it is the promise that God is here with us on earth, but it limits his presence. Most of us would have been kept quite a distance from the temple, kept away from the presence of God. Yes, the priests on our behalf would mediate. They would go to God. And the high priest on on one day each year would enter into the Holy of Holies, into that place where God's presence dwelled in his fullness. But even then, it was only with sacrifice. It was only through the shedding of blood. So when we, when we read Psalm 27, you and I have a, have a much better perspective than even David could have had. David, in the midst of his great faith and in the midst of his confidence, hadn't yet seen the fullness of God displaying the power of his presence. Because you and I have the promise of God that God himself comes down from heaven. That's the story of of Jesus' arrival. That's the story of Christmas when when he says, I am Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the one who has tabernacled among us, who has pitched his tent here in our midst, who is present with us. And Jesus offers us access to the presence of God. Not through rituals at a temple. He is God present with us. He is the great high priest, the one who offered a sacrifice once for all. Jesus has opened a new and living way for us. The curtain of the temple was torn in two at the death of Jesus 
so that the Holy of Holies is now extended to all who come by faith. Jesus has opened a new and living way through his body, through his death on the cross. And so, in the midst of struggle, what's the first thing we need to do? What's the primary response? It's to turn from our troubles and turn to God, to seek the Lord, to seek his presence. And yet we still struggle to find practical daily solutions for our fears. We, we want answers. Paul Ford describes himself as an anxious person. This is, this is how a, a, an interviewer begins the, the, the interview with Paul. He says, there's a voice in his head, a, a chittering little gremlin that's constantly telling him, hey, ignore whatever good things seem to be going on in your life. You're lousy. You're an imposter, and everybody in your life knows this. Now, Paul Ford describes himself. He says, I had two little children at home, and, and they were making me worry in really just the way, the regular way that kids make you worry. He says, I, at work, I wasn't finishing a bunch of projects. I was, I was really feeling like I was at the end. I was stressed. I was anxious. I was overweight. I was terrified. And I was just like, I've got to do better. The anxiety would creep in and say, uh, uh, wait, wait, you're never going to get anything done. Anxiety would tell me I'm a bad person. I'm a failure. Now, Paul is a computer programmer, so he decided to, to address the problem of his anxiety like he would address an IT problem at work. And so what he did is he created what he calls the anxiety box. It's a, it's a box, it's really it's just a website, in which you go, you enter your name and email address, and then you type and you put your anxieties into this into this this digital box. You write down the things that worry you. He says, you, you say, I'm, I'm anxious about finishing my book. I'm anxious about losing weight. And then you just keep adding your anxieties, and it saves them all in, in, into a database. And then he says, and then 12 times a day, really at random, the anxiety box sends you emails from your anxiety. It personifies your anxiety, but, but not in an encouraging way or a calming way, in a mocking way. You'll be sitting at breakfast, and your, your, your email will ping. And you open it up, and, and it'll say something like this, taunting you. Now, your mom and dad would never say anything, but they so want you to know why you would choose, they, they so want to know why you would choose to be unlovable and not smart. Or, or, or another email from, from Anxiety Personified, you know, I respect that you just want to live your life as if you don't care what other people think about your childish and disgusting behavior. And so 12 times throughout the day, you get these kind of insulting emails. Now, what Paul said that it did for him was it showed him when you hear it from outside of your head, when you take the voice that's telling you that inside your head and you put it outside and it shows up in an email and you see it repeatedly at random points throughout the day, you kind of realize how stupid it sounds. You kind of realize that, that when you hear it over and over again, well, you know, that's kind of nonsense. I wouldn't tolerate anybody else telling me this. I'm not going to tolerate this little anxiety robot telling me this. Now, maybe Paul Ford is on to something. I mean, maybe there is some value in, in telling someone else I need help and getting the thoughts outside of your head and having somebody reflect them back to you so that you can deal with them. But maybe more than a than a nonsensical robot shouting at us. 
Maybe we need to turn to someone who can help us see our worries for what they really are. And who offers us a response that leads us to confidence, that doesn't create further anxiety for us. Because an impersonal robot, or worse, an impersonal universe cannot offer us any real answers. The best thing that this robot can do is help you sort of shrug off the small worries of life. The problem is you and I are so good at creating worries, we can have a fresh list to start again tomorrow. And eventually, we get to worries and fears that are too big to be dealt with by an email. Because the email is really just dumping the problem back on you. And eventually you feel the weight and the sorrow of your own worries. But notice what David does. Now, verses 1 through 6, David was talking about God. It was a song of praise about what God has done for him. But in verse 7, he, he shifts gears. He switches context. Instead of talking about God, he begins to talk directly to God. Verse 7 becomes a, a prayer directly to God where he's speaking to God. See, that's what we need to turn from our fear and our anxiety and bring it to God. Verse 7, he says, Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. In verse 9, he pleads, Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. David turns his attention to God directly. He, he teaches us to, to bring our fears, our worries, our anxieties directly to God. Remember, he is the God of the universe. He is the rescuer, the deliverer, and so bring your, bring your fears to him. God is the one who, who rescues us for our, from our sins. He is the one who forgives us. God offers us hope right now in the midst of our story because Jesus entered our story. Jesus did more than, than suffer alongside of us. He suffered in our place. Jesus died on the cross for us. Jesus promises his presence with us. Even when everyone else fails you, Jesus will never fail. You can cry to him as, oh God, my Savior. Look at verse 10. David, David says, though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Now, there is something helpful in, in going to other people in the midst of anxiety and fear. We, we see in this psalm David's public worship. It, it, even as the, the prayer will, will transition back to in verses 13 and 14 to, to giving praise publicly to God, there's a reminder that we can get help from other people, that being in worship together is good for us. Because when your struggles seem too big to carry, when someone alongside you whom you've prayed for who you know is, is struggling, when they can say, my God and my Savior, when they can say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, then they help turn your eyes from the, the struggles back to God. There's something about praying for one another in the midst of a community group, 
where through tears you plead with God. You pray for each other. When, when your words fail you, you turn to another. But see, the problem is if we're only relying on other people, what can ultimately happen? The horror of verse 10. Though my father and my mother forsake me. These most intimate of relationships, a parent to a child. And yet even there we know there can be abandonment and brokenness. But even when everyone else turns away from you, what is the promise? The Lord will receive me. Yahweh will receive me. See, David's overwhelming confidence in this psalm might lead us to think that, that God has solved his problems. That as he looks around on the battlefield, the, the, the battle is over. He calls God his victory, his stronghold, his salvation. But throughout the psalm, the oppressors remain. Verse 11, his foes are there, verse 12. False witnesses ri rise up against him, breathing out violence. See, David's hope isn't in the change in his circumstances. It's in God himself who is with, uh, with him in the midst of his horror. What David is doing for us in this psalm, in giving praise to God and showing confidence in God and then turning to God in prayer, is, is he's essentially saying to us, as Counselor Ed Welch highlights from this psalm, David is essentially saying to us, when in doubt, pray. When you don't know what else to do, pray. Turn to God. Now, you may feel cheated because you think, I, I, I've, even if you've only been in church twice, you know that preachers tell you things like this. Pray. But don't you see what, what David is, is telling us? When you turn to God in prayer, you find your stronghold and your salvation. I mean, from the outside, closing your eyes and talking to the God in heaven, or, or walking out and screaming your, 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 your voice at the heavens, or, or, or falling to your knees and in silence and weeping. From the outside, that looks foolish, because if God is not there, then you're just shouting at yourself. But don't you see what David is offering us? What the psalm offers us? What God himself tells us? In the midst of your trials, pray. In the horror of your circumstances, pray. When you are overwhelmed with anxiety, pray. When in doubt, pray. See, David is in darkness, yet he remembers that God is the light. David is in danger, but he remembers God is his victory. Counselor Ed Welch continues describing the, the psalm. He says, it is as if David is flying a plane through thick fog. When you can't see out the windshield of your plane, when you can't see, you fly by the instruments as any experienced pilot can do. When there is a contradiction between your senses, what you see, what you hear, and your instruments, as a pilot, you have to trust the instruments. What do the instruments tell us here? What are they saying to us when we feel like our world has been thrown upside down, when we feel like we're spinning out of control? What, what do the instruments tell us? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Of whom shall I be afraid? 
Now, it's dangerous to preach sermons like this about anxiety. My parents worship here at Faith in the first service. Many of you have prayed for my dad in recent weeks for his heart trouble. He left the service in the middle of the service this morning. He grabbed my teenage son and dragged him out to the back of the sanctuary. So I knew it was something health-related, but they, they came back in. Partway through the sermon, my dad came back in and, and sat down. And then he left again. And yet, what has changed in my circumstances? Now, thankfully, my dad was fine. His first symptom when he was rushed to the hospital a couple of weeks ago was, was physical temperature heat, and he was overheated. So he just needed to go cool off outside for a minute, and then he sat in the back. Because he decided, if I'm going to have to call 911, it's easier to drag me out of the back, and you can just keep preaching. He says it's like at the Sunday breakfast mission. Whether the, whether the police come in and arrest somebody or the medics come in and drag somebody out, the men just say, preach it. Keep preaching. Don't slow down. Because whether he sits at the front and worships here or he is taken away on a stretcher, the truth doesn't change. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And David ends this psalm just the way he began it, with bold confidence in who God is. As he, as he concludes his prayer in verse 12, he turns in verse 13 to again speak to the congregation, to speak to the church. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It's not a mere confidence that God will rescue him from this battle. We have a greater confidence than that that we will be in the presence of God in the land of the living, in the land of resurrection hope, where the dead have been raised to new life, where God himself wipes the tears away from our eyes. This is the confidence that we have as Christians in the midst of our sorrow and suffering. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And then notice how he ends in verse 14. Wait. Wait for the Lord. When, when fear and anxiety come, you don't need anything new. You have everything you need to respond. Be strong and take heart. You already have the Lord. You already have his promises. You have access to him in prayer. You have the church to support you, to pray with you, to worship with you, to declare their confidence. You have everything that you need. And so wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. And so can you say it? The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Brothers and sisters, if you have turned to God in faith and you have his promises, the guarantee of his presence with you now and forevermore, and so wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I ask that you would strengthen us today. Lord, the fears and the anxieties that we face are not trivial or insignificant. We need your help. We need your answers. And so, Lord, give us a confidence in the midst of sorrow. Lord, for those who feel overwhelmed and threatened to be swallowed by fear, by anxiety, Lord, 
Prove to us today that you are our comfort, that you are our salvation. Lord, for those that have, that have been invited and now sit listening to your word, who have not yet responded by faith, Lord, give us the faith to believe. Make that a gift of your grace today. Through faith in Jesus, give us this bold confidence in life everlasting to be with you in your presence forever. Lord, we come because we have nowhere else to turn. And yet we come because we have no one else that we need aside from Jesus. He is everything that we need. Let us find our hope in him. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.